The summer sun burns hot on the plain. Insects whiz from pasque flower to pasque flower. A herd of hundreds of cattle grazes on clumps of blue gramma prairie grass. Branded into the beast's rumps is a peculiar symbol, a circle with two branch-like wings. Locals know it as the flying O. Does it mark the property of some frontier rancher, the living wealth of some vast cattle baron? No, this is the mark of a people for whom this is no frontier, and for whom these cattle mean something very, very different. Suddenly, the cow's eyes shoot wide, ears perk up, hooves stomp warily. Something is coming, or someone. Over the ridge crests a party of riders. They raise high their rifles and bows and shout war cries. The lumbering beasts dart, and the stampede begins. With practiced hands, the riders guide the fleeing cattle, corralling them to keep the herd together. When the moment is right, they move in for the kill. As the beasts go down, children watch with awe as men earn honor by deed. Men are men again. Meanwhile, women move in to skin the creatures. They harvest not only the meat, but also the hides essential to the craftsmanship that will bring them honor. Women are women again. But this is no callous slaughter. This is life-sustaining life. As the heartbeat of the beasts fade, another beats stronger. Generations can be heard in that life beat. This is a prayer and an answer to a prayer. For to these people, this is their last best hope to save a way of life. This is the cattle hunt of the Lakota. Wait, the cattle hunt of the Lakota? Shouldn't that be bison? That E.T. Newberg guy must be completely off his rocker this time. Well, no, actually, it's true. For about two decades in the late 19th century, the Lakota became cowboys, albeit of a very different sort than we usually think of. Now, why did the Lakota hunt cattle? Why was it crucial to maintaining the gender norms of Lakota men, women, and those two-spirit folk, the Winkte? And why was the cattle hunt their last best hope for survival. That's what we're talking about in today's episode. I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is the history of sex. History of Sex is sponsored by Dr. Jillian Kenny, historian of women, sex, and magic in medieval Europe. I'd like to thank our Patreon patron, Mickey Jennings, for making this episode possible. I'd also like to thank Dr. Jeff Beans, Dr. John Cleland Host, and Neil McKay for help in the preparation of this series. Folks, I'm recording this show here at my home in Minnesota. And this is on the ancestral lands of the Anishinaabe, also called the Ojibwe, 
and the Ocheti Shakuin, better known to most people as the Sioux. And they are comprised of the Lakota, the Dakota, and the Nakota peoples. There was a time in the not-too-distant past when my ancestors called this the frontier, but there were already peoples here for whom it was no such thing, and the meeting of our ancestors was sometimes peaceable and sometimes even mutually beneficial, but in the end, of course, wrought atrocities upon those native to this place, who have been striving to maintain their culture through waves of change ever since, and despite it all, they remain today proud and vital. Folks, this is the beginning of our new series, Sex on the Great Plains, looking at the same region as the Wild West, but through the eyes of its native inhabitants. Specifically, we'll be focusing on the Lakota. When you see Native Americans depicted in Western films, you know, wearing eagle feather headdresses and riding horses across open range, that is mostly inspired by Plains tribes like the Lakota. Now, often the depictions are completely inappropriate in these films, you know, transporting a specifically Plains-based lifestyle to, say, the Southwest Desert or someplace like that, and transposing it onto tribes who lived very differently in actual history. And as a result, the impression in many people's minds is that all Native Americans are more or less like the Lakota, when in fact, they are just one tribe among hundreds, each with their different cultures, identities, and languages. In actual fact, the traditional Lakota way of life is unique to them and uniquely adapted to the Great Plains. They ranged across the expanse on horseback in a nomadic lifestyle, following herds of bison and striking fear into the hearts of their enemies. But according to historian and Oglala Lakota tribe member Jeff Means, by the 1860s, the bison were nearly gone from the plains. An entire way of life was at risk of disappearing. Deprived of the herds that once roamed in the tens of millions, the Lakota were brought to their knees. Now, this was not military conquest. The Lakota had won Red Cloud's war against the U.S. Army and defeated General Custer at the Battle of Little Bighorn. No, this was loss of a different kind. By the latter half of the 19th century, the Lakota knew that they had to change. They could not sustain themselves without the base of their power, the bison. Nor could they sustain their culture. Men who once made their names in the hunt, and especially in the warfare that defended access to the hunt, such men had no way left to prove themselves. And women, once famed for their craftsmanship at hides, had nothing left to craft. And leaders, who once earned power through generosity, had no meat left to share. To them, the bison was not just a source of food and raw materials. It was the very lifeblood of their culture. Without it, they would die, unless, that is, they could find a substitute for the great shaggy beasts of the plains. And so reluctantly, in 1868, they made peace with the United States, who guaranteed them a territory almost the size of Germany, and promised, in recognition of the loss of bison, a pound per day of beef on the hoof to every Lakota. Now, cattle were poor cousins of bison, to be sure, but, well, perhaps they might do. And it stung to rely on handouts from a government that had taken from them everything that they had known. But they had little choice. With cattle, 
I mean, they could hunt again. They could craft again. They could lead again. They could be proud again. Men could be men again, and women could be women again. And the two-spirit wink day, they could be wink day again. And by the way, we'll have much more to say about the wink day in a future episode. In short, through cattle, it just might be possible that the Lakota could live as they once did, as a people of the plains. Now, how did the Lakota come to this point? How did they develop gender norms that were centered around the mighty bison? And when the bison disappeared, how did they strive to preserve those norms by switching to cattle? Today, we're going to see how the Lakota developed over time, changing again and again in response to new challenges, beginning with how they became a people of the plains in the first place. Lakota culture is uniquely adapted to the Great Plains, but it was not always so. They began as forest people. Now, pre-contact histories in North America are notoriously difficult to reconstruct, but according to one theory, put forward by anthropologist Guy Gibbon and supported by tribal oral narratives, archaeological evidence, and linguistic patterns, the ancestry of the Lakota traces back to the North Woods around the Great Lakes in modern-day Wisconsin and Minnesota. Now, according to this theory, the ancestors of the Lakota were bands of hunter-gatherers who moved into the southwestern Great Lakes area by about 800 CE. And there, they may have interacted with some of the great mound-building cultures of the Mississippi. Then, sometime around 1300 CE, trade and conflict with the Oneata to the south led them to form together into a cohesive tribe. Now, this was not yet the Lakota, but what archaeologists refer to as the Tsunomani complex, Tsunomani being a Dakota word that means wild rice gatherer. Now, it may have been at this time that they developed what Gibbon calls a, quote, male warrior slash supremacist complex. Now, setting aside the problems with that term for just a moment, a development like this, this warrior culture development, often coincides with the emergence of tribes. As Gibbons explains, tribalization is frequently spurred by conflict with neighboring, aggressive, and more highly organized peoples, which leads bands to come together for mutual defense. And so you can already see where this is going. This produces opportunities to gain status and authority through warfare, hence the tendency for tribal societies to privilege warriors. But associating this exclusively with male warriors is a little bit problematic, especially in this case, because there may have been female warriors as well at this time. See, the Sonomini complex would eventually give birth to both the Lakota and the Dakota tribes, and while we have no records of female fighters among the Lakota, they were apparently fairly common among the Dakota. Anthropologist Beatrice Medicine writes of the Dakota, While women were tacitly barred from joining war parties, many did participate in war for glory as well as revenge, and some even led war expeditions. Women who had achieved war honors played an important role in the Winukshara, the female equivalent of the male Akichita, or soldiers. These women were called upon to police other women in the campsite and to punish female offenders. 
Now, that term that medicine uses here, we nuqshada, can also mean female elder, but here refers specifically to women warriors. So, there you have it. There were female fighters among the Dakota. Yes, the majority of them were male, but female fighters were not unknown among the Dakota, and one might therefore reasonably wonder if they were also present among their parent culture, the Tsinomani complex, and therefore among the ancestors of the Lakota as well. We can't say with confidence, but it's certainly possible. In any case, this newly tribalized warrior culture lived in the North Woods, harvesting wild rice, tapping maple trees, and hunting deer. Now, what were their gender norms like at this time? Well, I tried to find out, but I was not able to uh, turn up any studies specifically speculating on this. However, hunter-gatherer societies in general tend to divide tasks along gender lines, and the descendants of this early people, the Sonomini complex, show such divisions very strongly. Both the Lakota and Dakota would come to allot hunting and fishing to men, and the processing of these animals to women. And horticulture and agriculture, when it was practiced, would also be allotted to women. Now, whether these task allocations were already customary at the time of this Sonomini complex is difficult to say, but it would be, again, a reasonable assumption. In any case, the Sonomini complex persisted for several centuries in the North Woods. Now, the first non-indigenous record of this people comes from 1641, when a pair of French missionaries asked the Anishinaabe, or Ojibwe, about them. And as the story goes, the Anishinaabe said that they were, quote, people of an alien tribe, which in their language is something like Natoe Siwa. The French shortened that to Sioux, and Bob's your uncle, that's how they got their name. Now, this may or may not be true. And in fact, today, some are trying to move away from that term, Sioux, because well, it's not their term for themselves. Also, there's another interpretation of the meaning, kind of like snakes in the grass. So, you know, it's a little bit sketchy. Many people are still perfectly happy calling themselves Sioux today, but others, such as Dr. Jeff Means, have started moving away from it, preferring instead to be called the people of the Ocheti Shakowin, or Seven Council Fires. And so that's what we are going to call them from here on out in this series. So this people of the Seven Council Fires may have ventured into the prairie um, once or twice a year maybe to hunt bison, but they were not yet a people of bison. They were not yet a people of the plains. But that was soon to change, and it changed for several reasons. First, Anishinaabe began to expand into their turf. Now, this was partly the initiative of these tribes themselves, but it was also partly the result of European colonization far to the east over in New England, which pushed tribes westward, which in turn pushed their neighbors westward, and so you got this kind of domino effect until finally the Anishinaabe started pushing into the homeland of the Seven Council Fires. Second, an important influence came from the south as well. See, as Europeans began to explore up the Mississippi looking for furs, it created a profitable opportunity for local tribes in this area. And by the early 18th century, many of those tribes were competing with one another for a piece of this lucrative new trade with this alien people. And finally, 
a new technology became available, the horse. Now, horses are, in fact, native to North America, but they had gone extinct several thousand years before this, and so they were not available until reintroduced by Europeans, and then the capacity for mounted travel became available again, and this revolutionized life on the plains. Much as the horse enabled the Mongols to sweep across the steppes of Asia, in much the same way, it empowered the people of the Seven Council Fires to strike out across the Great Plains. And by 1700, they were mounting up and moving out. Over the next hundred years, they left behind the familiarity of their forest homeland and exploded westward. As they struck out in all directions, they developed distinct identities based on where they settled exactly and the new ways of life that they took up in those places. For example, some settled along the Mississippi and Minnesota rivers and got in on the fur trade, and these became the Dakota. Meanwhile, those that went northward into present-day northern North Dakota, Montana, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta became the Yankton-Yanktonai Dakota, sometimes called the Nakota. And finally, a third group became nomads, riding far in search of game, pushing across the Red River into present-day North and South Dakota, Wyoming, and Montana, and these became the Lakota. Now, as their lifestyles changed, so too did their languages, diverging into dialects. All three of these names, Dakota, Nakota, and Lakota, these are all essentially actually the same word, but pronounced in three now divergent dialects, and they're all roughly translatable as the people or free people, something somewhere in that approximate meaning. So they all diverged. Now, I should note at this point that there are other ways that these people categorize their identities. You know, exactly who is a subsection of who and what to call each group. And next month, we will hear Jeff Means give a slightly different breakdown than this. So I want to acknowledge that there are other legitimate ways of presenting this. But for the sake of clarity, we just kind of have to pick one system and go with it. And so we will go with this tripartite division in this series of so Dakota, Nakota, and Lakota. Each of those three settled in different areas, took up different lifestyles, and this is how the Lakota developed their own unique identity by roving far out into the Great Plains, farther than their cousins, and adopting a nomadic horseback-based lifestyle, which was centered around bison. Now, what was that new culture like, and how did it affect their gender norms? We're going to find that out next. So we just saw how the Lakota emerged out of the early Sonomini complex, who became the people of the Seven Council Fires, and who then differentiated into the Dakota, Nakota, and Lakota peoples. Now, what did the new culture of the Lakota become, and how did their gender norms change? The answer to both lies in the great shaggy beast of the plains, the bison. The herds they found at this time numbered in the tens of millions. It was inconceivable that in a mere hundred years, they would be all but gone. 
for in the 18th century, they seemed almost infinite. In fact, so abundant were the bison that the Lakota went all in on this life-giving beast, shaping their entire culture around it. Gender norms became defined by how each gender interacted with the bison. If you were a male, you were in charge of hunting. You scouted for bison, you spied out the herd, organized the approach, made the kill, and transported it back to camp. You might also share out the bison meat that you procured, along with other possessions like horses, and thereby gain influence through gifting and thus rise toward leadership within the tribe. And finally, as a male, you took part in warfare, which secured continued access to the herds of bison. Now, if you were female, you were in charge of crafting. When the bison carcasses were brought back to camp by men, they were handed over to you for pretty much everything else necessary. Thus, your roles included cooking meat, drying meat into jerky, tanning hides, fashioning hides into clothing, bedding and teepee dressings, decorating hides, crafting utensils, tools, and implements, and generally crafting bison into every other product necessary for survival, comfort, and trade on the plains. And you also did other kinds of crafts, like, for example, quill work using dyed porcupine quills, and beadwork, which basically functioned as a substitute for quills after the Lakota moved to the central plains where porcupines were rarer and they would have to trade for the quills or else use beads. Now, when it came time to move the camp, it was also your job as a female to strike and pack the teepee, guard it during the move, and erect it again upon arrival. And finally, it was your job to gather firewood, fetch water, and care for children. Finally, if you were a two-spirit winkte, meaning someone who was assigned sex as male by your culture, but culturally recognized as something distinct, a third gender, you might say, you joined the women in certain crafting activities, quilling and beadwork, for example, while also joining the men in warfare, which was, as we said, indirectly related to the protecting of the bison herd access. So basically, you had a foot in both worlds. Now, we'll save the details for a future episode, but the important thing to recognize for now is that this third gender as well followed the overall pattern of gender roles breaking down along interaction with bison. Now, all of these roles were really quite rigid, kind of especially rigid compared to neighboring tribes. And while, you know, a certain level of rigidity, well, that's just expected in a society that's more collective than individualistic. It's more, it's not about what you feel or what you want as an individual. It's about the role that you fit into in your society. But even so, it seems that the Lakota kind of took it to extremes. If you were a man, you hunted. If you were a woman, you crafted. And that was the order of the day. With the exception of the Winkte, there was really not a whole lot of middle ground there. So, for example, even though you had the Winkte for those assigned sex as male, but who had a calling for something different, there was no analogous option for those assigned sex as female, but who were called to male roles. Those who expressed behaviors considered masculine might actually be chased out of camp. And also, as we heard earlier, women warriors were unheard of among the Lakota. And that latter part, the women warriors thing, that's actually particularly odd because female fighters were actually known among 
many of the neighboring plains tribes, like the Pegan, for example, and of course, they were fairly common among the Lakota's close cousins, the Dakota. And so it's not at all like the Lakota just, you know, couldn't culturally conceive of women taking place in war. Rather, they made the collective choice to maintain gender norms that were particularly rigid in this respect. Now, why that rigidity was there, I will not speculate. However, I will say that all of this has to be taken very much in a broader context. So here's what I mean by that. You know, as strict as the Lakota gender norms were, if you look at it historically, they were actually less strict than Euro-American settler norms at this time. Settlers, if you think about it, well, they had no culturally recognized options at all for anybody assigned to one sex but called to another. And nor did they have any culturally recognized way for women to go to war. It happened in both cases, but it was not at all something that the culture recognized or had any established way to deal with or to think about. The Lakota had some of that. So in that respect, they were less rigid than settlers were at this time, but they were apparently more rigid than many of their neighboring plains tribes. So that's what I mean by you got to keep this in context. Similarly, Lakota women may have been slightly more politically empowered than their settler counterparts at this time. See, while Lakota leadership did indisputably concentrate in male hands, this was a patriarchal culture. Despite that, women were perhaps closer to the decision-making and may have had more leverage than white women at the time. And this was due to norms that stemmed, again, from a lifestyle that was based on bison. Here's how this breaks down. Okay, so to follow the herds, you know, you got to imagine the herds of animals don't follow committee decisions, right? You have to be quite flexible as a people to follow herds like this. So the Lakota needed to spread out and they needed to be maneuverable and move with maximum flexibility. And thus, they developed a decentralized system of governance based on extended family units called tioshpae. And these camps of kin were more or less autonomous units. They maintained ties with one another through marriage, and they came together for tribal gatherings, but otherwise operated pretty much independently. And this meant that power was much closer to the average person, including the average woman. And although women were barred from becoming chiefs of the Tioshpae, Women were nevertheless respected in council, and they usually found ways to make their opinions known. Compare this to white women at the time. I mean, the suffrage movement was basically a glimmer in white women's eyes still at this point. You know, we're talking about the 18th century here. It was soon to come, but comparatively, the points kind of go to the Lakota. Now, in addition, they had considerable leverage over the men in their lives. First, as the exclusive producers of the craft products that brought wealth through trade and influence through gifting, Lakota women had, you know, what you might call labor power. They could make some demands because they could hold out. <laughs> Second, divorce was relatively easy within Lakota society, so she could leave a husband if she was unsatisfied with his decisions. Third, couples could live with either the Tioshbae of the husband or that of the wife. So it's very possible that she might have 
blood family relatives, you know, right there living right next to her that she could call on to support her if she was in conflict with her husband. Finally, in cases of polygamous marriages with multiple wives, which did sometimes happen among the Lakota, the wives were usually sisters or cousins of each other. This was called sororal polygyny. And this meant that those wives, being you know very close since childhood, could present a unified front against their husband and therefore, again, be empowered. And so all of these things meant that Lakota women were nothing to be trifled with. They had significant leverage and influence within their society and perhaps slightly more even than white women at this time among the settlers. So in short, Lakota gender roles may have been relatively rigid, comparatively speaking, to the other tribes around them, but that really just needs to be seen in its proper context. So those are the gender roles of the Lakota, and you got to remember that all of this, all of this that we were just talking about, can be traced back ultimately to the influence of their lifestyle, the influence of a lifestyle that's based around bison. The bison presented an unparalleled opportunity for the Lakota, and it made them powerful. They became big kids on the block, you could say, in this region. Yet all good things come to an end. And even as the Lakota were on the rise, the beginning of the end was already blowing in the wind. See, along with the pale-skinned aliens from the far shores had come a different kind of invader. And it started with fever, then headache and fatigue and severe back pain, and then came the spots, first on the face and the hands, and then all over the body. They called it the rotting face sickness. Settlers called it smallpox. Now, it took time for this disease to penetrate all the way to the plains, but when it did, boy, it hit hard. From 1775 to 1782, the North American smallpox epidemic decimated Plains Indian tribes, and continued to do so year after year after year for the rest of the century. And the typical tribe lost somewhere between 25 and 50 percent of their population on average. Now, it's hard to conceptualize just how bad that is. So for comparison, well, we all know how disruptive COVID-19 has been to our society, right? But the numbers on that, well, that has only killed about 0.3% of the U.S. population, or 0.07% of the global population overall. So put that in perspective. Now imagine losing 25 to 50%. I mean, this was apocalyptic. And some tribes had it worse than others. I mean, the river tribes like the Mondan, the Hidatsa, and the Arikara, for example, clustered together as they were in populous villages, you know, along the riverside. You can imagine how that would be a problem <laughs> if you have a disease. Well, they were almost entirely wiped out by this epidemic. And some estimates put their losses as high as 90%. I mean, they were all but annihilated 
by this. So you have to imagine the kind of world that the Lakota are living in now. You've got to imagine what this looks like to ride into these places that have been hit hard by this, right? I mean, a vast grassland full of villages, but when you ride into them, all the homes are empty. You know, where there used to be people, now there's nothing but the wind. I mean, it's almost like something out of a Mad Max movie. But in this post-apocalyptic wasteland, some tribes did suffer less than others, and among these were the Lakota. See, their newly nomadic lifestyle being spread out and separated into their teoshbae, I mean, with relatively little contact between groups, it kind of insulated them from infection. I mean, it's kind of like social distancing times a hundred. You can imagine how that would help. And as a result, as their neighbors fell, the Lakota, they rose. They found the plains basically opened up for them. Now, at first, the Lakota cleaned up, preying on the weakened peoples around them, such as the river tribes that I just mentioned. But this very same raiding brought them into contact with the disease, and soon they too began to fall. Now, the tragedy of this is recorded in Lakota winter counts. These are pictographic calendars that are painted on bison hides, and each year is symbolized by a picture showing whatever was the most significant event. These were like mnemonic tools for storytellers within the tribe. They would each have their own winter count hide, uh, and we have many of these preserved, so we can see what at least these individuals were thinking about the times that they lived through. And many of them symbolize year after year with designs that represented smallpox. One, for example, I heard was a, a spiral symbol that represents pain was often used to symbolize this. Of course, it depended on the individual. So, I mean, this clearly impacted the Lakota in a big way. And while the Lakota losses may have been on the low end, relatively speaking, you know, perhaps around that 25%, we don't have good numbers, but, you know, that would be the low end of the typical estimates on average. You know, if we recall that COVID-19 has only taken a mere fraction of a percentage, not even 1%, and yet it's wreaked havoc on our society to the extent that we, <laughs> that we all know that it has, now imagine even just 25% how absolutely catastrophic that would be. Hopefully that gives it some kind of reference point for everybody listening here. And to put that further into perspective, Part of the rating of the weakened peoples, especially in the later years, included carrying off women and children. Why? Because they would be incorporated into the tribe to replenish their numbers. That's how desperate they had become. So now you have to imagine, you know, in addition to just having to live in this kind of Mad Maxi kind of reality, now you have to imagine that you've got a tribe, you know, this is a people whose view of gender is now kind of skewed by how this has affected them. So increased emphasis on raiding, you know, male warfare, for one thing, and for another thing, influx of women from foreign peoples. You know, you can only imagine how that must have affected things. I don't have any specific recorded evidence that I can quote to you, but you can just imagine how that must have affected their culture. And this kept happening 
all throughout the 18th century, and then it kept happening into the 19th. It struck again in a very big way in 1837 with the 1837 Great Plains epidemic, when an outbreak on an unquarantined steamboat infected local native populations, and that again was a major tragedy. But the Lakota fared, again, less poorly than their neighbors, and this time they were aided by inoculation. Inoculation like vaccines. See, vaccines are actually a fairly old technology, and a vaccine for smallpox had been developed in 1796 already. And the United States government was, believe it or not, actually motivated to inoculate native peoples, and not just out of charity, but out of the very practical decision to prevent spread to settler populations. Now, mind you, that is not to say that the stories of giving smallpox infested blankets to local tribes in order to undermine them is not also true. That may also very well have happened, as historian Anne F. Romanovsky contends. However, the official policy of the United States was that the risk of spread to whites was just too great, and so the vaccination of tribes should be encouraged. That was the policy, regardless of what other things may have happened. Now, in this case, the local U.S. official only had enough vaccines for one tribe. Didn't have enough to go around. Only had enough for one tribe, and so they gave it to who? The regional power who could keep the other tribes in line? The Lakota. And this garnered the Lakota even more power at the expense of their neighbors. So in some ways, you could say, and as bad as it was, they had some silver linings, and they were very much on the rise. However, at the same time, they were facing down existential threats. As if the smallpox invasion were not enough, they were also watching quite warily the encroachment of the United States. See, the Lakota and the U.S. represented two expanding powers in the region, two empires, you could say, and it was all but inevitable that they would eventually come into conflict. And although they had fought together in the Arikara War of 1823, they were uneasy allies, and relations with the U.S. would soon strain to the breaking point. See, the Lakota witnessed their cousins, the Dakota, starved and humiliated by settlers. The U.S. wanted them to take up agriculture, but as we've heard, among the people of the seven council fires, both the Lakota and the Dakota were people of the seven council fires, among these people, farming was considered women's work. And so that was a hard sell. And some of them did do it. Some of them did take up farming. But then came droughts. And altogether, this brought famine to the Dakota people. And this desperation sparked an uprising. There was plenty of blame on both sides, including the local Indian agent uh, refusing to give food out of their silos to the Dakota, who were starving merely because it wasn't the specific food that had been promised them by treaty. It was different food, and he would not give it over to them. So there was not much else that the Dakota could do. They were desperate. And so this led to the U.S.-Dakota conflict of 1862, which unfortunately saw the Dakota defeated, then marched along the Minnesota River in a local version of the Trail of Tears, and eventually forced onto reservations. This is what the Lakota were witnessing. 
So if you were the Lakota at the seeing this, you know, what would you say about that? What what would your thoughts for the future be? I mean, they knew it was only sooner or later that it was going to be their turn. And if they wanted to preserve their way of life, they had to fight. And not as some disorganized uprising, but as a strategic war. Now, a number of small conflicts occurred in the 1860s. And then in 1866, the U.S. established a number of illegal forts within territory recently conquered by the Lakota, and this was more than the Lakota could bear, and this resulted in Red Cloud's War. And Red Cloud's War resulted in a victory over the U.S. Army at what the Lakota call the Battle of the Hundred in Hand, which was, by the way, an outcome that was predicted by a Winkte seer, according to the stories. And further conflicts following Red Cloud's War gave the U.S. endless trouble, including the 1876 battle that saw General Custer fall at Little Bighorn. Now, despite these glorious victories, the Lakota were nevertheless backed into a corner. See, they had won the War of Arms, but they had lost the War of Stomachs. You see, the bison, on which they depended for food, not to mention everything else in their culture, the bison were disappearing. Now, why were the bison disappearing? Well, there were many reasons, but Dr. Jeff Means lays the largest share of blame on the development of a particular chemical process for tanning hides, which vastly increased the rate of production among settlers who were supplying gluttonous markets back east with these coveted bison hides. And there's a picture that I saw, a photo, we'll put it on the episode post on our website, it's this giant pile with a cowboy standing on top of it. It must have been like a 30-foot-tall pile, maybe like 50 feet long, and it's all bison skulls, just the skulls. It's just an unprecedented amount of harvest of bison all at one time. Yeah, so that's why the bison were disappearing. <laughs> it would be disingenuous to say that the Lakota themselves played no part. They also hunted quite a bit, but nowhere near in these numbers. And so it would also be disingenuous to say that it wasn't almost 100% the fault of white settlers. So in light of this, you know, the bison were dwindling, what future could there possibly be for the Lakota, whose entire culture had up to this point revolved around bison? They faced certain doom if they could not find a substitute. So with no other viable option at hand, the Lakota made peace with the U.S. government, and in return were guaranteed a territory roughly the size of Germany, maybe around Poland kind of, stretching across parts of South Dakota, North Dakota, Montana, Wyoming, and Nebraska, and in recognition of the fact that without bison, the Lakota could not sustain themselves and therefore might turn to raiding white settlements. Again, no charity here. This is practical Machiavellian reasoning on the part of the U.S. government, the U.S. also made the very practical decision to promise payments on a per capita basis to each Lakota of flour and beef. And the beef was delivered on the hoof as live cattle. And here, it seemed, could be just what the Lakota were looking for. This might be the answer to their prayers. See, without bison, they couldn't eat, 
They couldn't produce clothing. They couldn't produce teepees or crafts for trade. They had nothing to trade to even get the wealth enough to buy what they needed. Men could not be men. Women could not be women. Winkte could not be Winkte. Their whole way of life was about to perish. But this creature, a poor man's bison to be sure, but this creature just might be the answer. And so the Lakota began to hunt again. There was no more of that mighty grunting, that snort that bison make. Now it was mooing. <laughs> you know, maybe not as majestic, but hey, maybe, just maybe, it would suffice. The cattle turned out on the range was the new herd. Beef was the new food. And leather was the new hide. Many of the Lakota even chose to own their herds in common, you know, putting the group first, as in the Teoshbae of old. And at Pine Ridge, the brand of the collective was the Flying O, that circle with two branch-like wings. That was how they marked their cattle that belonged not to some frontier rancher, not to some wealthy cattle baron, not to any individual, but to the group, to the Teoshbae. And this brand well, it marked far more than ownership. It symbolized an entire way of life that was now sustained by cattle. And in this way, the Lakota became cowboys. Well, that's all I've got for you today, folks. I hope you learned something. I certainly did. There's a whole lot more to the story here. For example, what happened to the Lakota after they became cowboys? How did it work out for them? And that is what we are going to learn about next month in a very special interview with historian Dr. Jeff Means. The theme music for today's episode is courtesy of the Battling Sioux Singers. You can check them out on YouTube on the Pow Wow Times channel. Folks, if you like what we're doing here on this show, you can support us by subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts. Or you can pledge on Patreon, where $5 a month gets you a portrait drawn in the time period and culture of your choosing. I will draw you as a Mustang-mounted hunter bringing home the bounty, or a bead-bejeweled craftswoman making her masterpiece. Or whatever you want, I'll make you look awesome, I promise. And also, by the way, we are planning to donate the proceeds earned on Patreon for this series, Sex on the Great Plains, to One Spirit, a volunteer organization helping the Lakota meet their goal of achieving food sovereignty and self-sufficiency in their communities. So to help out with that and get yourself a portrait, just go to www.patreon.com slash btnewberg. That's patreon.com slash b-t-n-e-w-b-e-r-g. All right, thanks for listening, everybody, and be sure to check out our next episode where we talk to Dr. Jeff Means. I'll see you then. I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is the history of sex. Podcast theme music mixed from tracks by Kevin McLeod. For additional credits, references, photos, and more, see our website at www.historyofsexpod.com.